Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Hill, and you're listening to the Neural Noodle Network podcast. Give a listen. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssen's, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Guckelman. Our goal is to promote options for better mental health. Specifically, we focus on the objective data you can receive from a brain map and the positive results of training with neurofeedback. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hey, and buy us a cup of coffee on Patreon. Be a supporter of the show, get early content, behind-the-scenes action, as well as partake in our members-only Neuro Noodle Network meeting. Hey, if they can't hear us, we can't help them. Again, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you're not a subscriber, visit NeuroNoodle.com to sign up for our newsletter. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Dr. Andrew Hill, founder of Peak Brain Institute. Now, we we were introduced to you from uh, Dr. Sanderson out in California with Miramar. She does a lot of great work uh, with dementia. Uh, how do you know Dr. Sanderson? I mean, I think just tangentially, the, the field of neurofeedback, as you guys certainly know, is pretty small and a little bit self-referential. I mean, I, I doubt there's uh, even 5,000 people in the U.S. who are sort of at a high level clinically doing this anymore. Um, in fact, from my perspective, the field has been shrinking the whole time I've been in it. I mean, I'm I'm relatively young in the field. A lot of my mentors are aging out and or dying, and I'm sort of seeing the field shrink a little bit. And and Dr. Sanderson is another one of these. Uh, actually, I'm not sure when she's uh, when she went to the field, but she seems to be at the same sort of generation younger a little bit. Um, like, uh, like I, I, uh, am, and I came into the field sort of being aware of her, but, uh, just, just a tangential professional relationship. Yeah. Jay, we had the passing of Joe Castellano. Uh, I didn't know him. You sure did. I'm sure everybody else did. Can sure. you, can you touch on that? Sure. Uh, he just had his birthday a few weeks ago, turned 49. So it was a, a precipitous, unexpected occurrence and, um, uh, he will be added to the list of the remembrance uh, event, which is this Friday at 4.15 Pacific, uh, 6.15 Central time. Uh, if you go to aapb.org, uh, you'll be able to find a link. You need to uh, register for it to get a, a Zoom invite to the, uh, to the event. As Andrew pointed out, the F1 generation of the uh, field is uh, long in the tooth. It's an aging uh, field. We do have wonderful students. The the field, I, I've been fostering students as best I can for uh, the last 20 plus years. I've auctioned off this beard to the total of $17,000 for student funds. Uh, people shave it off into funny uh, various uh, forms. Uh, but just as an indication, uh, Stu Donaldson uh, has passed. Stu was foundationally involved in the EMG uh, feedback. He had added EEG as well later in his career, but he was well known for EMG biofeedback, muscle uh, biofeedback. Les Femi, uh, who uh, taught open focus, uh, alpha style training, uh, five-channel phase-sensitive uh, feedback back in the 70s. Um, uh, Joe Camilla, obviously F1 himself, the founder of Alpha as a, a, a thing that you could feed back, uh, be sensitive to, as well as potentially control operantly or 
uh, with systems theory, there's arguments as to what the mechanism is. Uh, Larry Klein, one of the original manufacturing promoters in the field, Thought Technologies uh, co-founder, uh, started the Biofeedback uh, Federation in, in Europe, the foundation over there, um, which has been going uh, as an educational body for many decades. Um, uh, Peter Rosenfeld, uh, who a lot of people don't necessarily remember, he, uh, he kind of departed from the EEG biofeedback into ERP uh, event-related potentials in a very deep way, um, it, it involved in uh, truth detection, false detection, uh, using ERP with um, uh, uh, some of the um, uh, national security folks even. Um, uh, Michael Thompson, uh, um, a yeah. clinical uh, person and a, a dear friend, um, uh, he, he passed uh, the ADD Center in Canada. His wife, Linda, still uh, operates, uh, but it's been a, a tragic loss with him passing. The heart rate variability founder is a Russian. If it weren't for him, HRV wouldn't be present in the United States. He brought uh, HRV that they had done with the cosmonauts and, uh, and peak performers, uh, high altitude climbers and things like that. Elsa Baer, who did uh, frontal alpha asymmetry uh, training uh, for, for depression. Uh, Nancy Moss isn't a, a person in the field, but Don Moss is her husband. And Nancy just passed a couple of days ago. And now I hear from Andrew that Aaron Zydell, a professor at UCLA, who was open to doing neurofeedback uh, in, at UCLA for grad students. And goodness, tw maybe 20 years ago or so, I referred Andrew there uh, as, as a potential spot for him to do his PhD. There's a lot of people uh, that have passed. And the Remembrance Service Friday is, I think, going to be overflowing. Uh, and uh, obviously, the most recent, uh, the tragic passing of Joe Castellano. It's uh, joyous to remember them. Uh, it's tragic to have lost them. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks Jake. So, Dr. Hill, please tell us about uh, your business. How long you've been in business? Give us a little background on that. Sure. So um, our company, Peak Brain Institute, has been around for coming up on six years in a couple of months. And we are, um, it's my second neurofeedback company. I ran another one for a few years that was focused on addiction. And as we outgrew the addiction space, basically, because we were working with all brains, we sort of broke off into another company. And Peak Brain, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, unlike almost everyone in the field has a therapeutic focus. Not everyone, as you guys know, but the, the general field is therapists, social workers, psychologists, nurses, people working in a therapeutic context for the most part, in a, you know, with the transference and the, the container, so to speak, with their clients. And I sort of felt like a lot of what we do is closer to fitness. And so I started a company who is trying to provide education and facilitation of the process of neurofeedback but without it being a therapy process. So I call it functional neuroscience, which sort of sits between fitness, medicine, and psychology. And it uses tools from all three, but instead of it being a process of, you know, brain mapping, like many of us do and saying, ah, here's what's wrong. I'll, I'll treat you. It's a process of great. Here's a brain map. Here's what they can show. What do you think? Where are your goals? What do you think is interesting? And peak brain tends to provide uh, education around QEGs around brain mapping for the individual 
and teach them to understand themselves from the maps and from attention testing. And then we can often help them achieve certain uh, performance goals. Um, and because I have a broad experience clinically across different you know, areas of complaint, I've done a lot of work with autism, a lot of work with addiction. Um, but over the past decade, we've really moved more into peak performance and uh, high level performers. So, you know, I still have a third of my clients are kids with autism, people with seizures, people with brain injuries, mold, Lyme, COVID. I see a huge amount of post COVID brain stuff these days, but about a third of my clients are the highest performers in the world. You know, your favorite athletes, your favorite TV stars who are, you know, trying to handle their stress. Um, and then of course, the other third is all the rest of us, those of us with brains that might need some support or optimization and sleep, stress, and attention. But peak brain tends to do things a little differently because we operate outside of the therapy context. For instance, we provide free brain mapping after the first one for our clients uh, ongoing without any charge. So it's an educational, you know, it's your lab, it's your gym, it's your spa to come check your brain out. It's not your doctor's office where every relationship is expensive and charged. It's your resource. And some people come in trying to work on their creativity, other folks on their immune function, other folks on their seizures, or they're, you know, getting off book on their play on one reading again, or something if they're getting older. Um, and so over the years, uh, again, Peak Brain uh, launched in the fall of uh, 2015. And we've grown, uh, we have an office in Los Angeles, we have one in Orange County, California. We have a big one in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, oddly enough. We have some European uh, centers, one in London, one in Copenhagen, but all of that is about 25% of our clients. Most of our clients at this point work virtually from home with leased equipment, live staff, and we do everything virtually for the most part. The pandemic, of course, accelerated this, but even in 2019, we were about 50% virtual with our clients. And so that's jumped to about maybe 75% these days, but we send out brain mapping amplifiers. We have live staff do your maps with you at home. Uh, we use, you know, portable devices for training. We use the clinical software eager, uh, with home clients now. So it's a very seamless process. It's very similar to coming into the office and working with the trainers, uh, or the coaches, we call them as well as working from home directly. And I've got everyone from, you know, high, high level athletes and actors to people that are, you know, have 17, you know, impaired kids. And they're trying to get some, some relief from them. So, uh, it's really quite a wide range of brains as I'm sure all you guys have come across as, as well when you get all kinds of things when you work with brains. So I've stopped trying to specialize. Instead, I'll just help you work with whatever brain goals you want to work with. Uh, the Olympics, what, what's your feedback on what's been going on with uh, Simone and Naomi? Uh, yeah. Is, the, is your peak performance business uh, getting an uptick from it? Inquiries? Just curious. We haven't yet. Um, certainly Simone, of course, being a Bruin, you know, I'm, I got my PhD at UCLA. I have a soft spot, a sweet spot for, you know, for supporting her and would love to support, you know, her if she has any need, but my take on this, and again, I'm very tangentially, you know, I don't, I don't know what the Olympic commission committee has done and I don't know what the limits are in Japan, but my understanding is that psychostimulants are somewhat anathema in Japan and they're kind of steered away from mostly for cultural reasons, right? Because in, was it World War One or two, the, the kamikaze pilots would get seriously jacked up on, on stimulants and, you know, commit suicide with bombs. And the sort of cultural signification in Japan, I think, is stimulants are that old thing that was a problem, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and so stimulants are very, very uh, highly controlled in Japan, which and my, my understanding on this is that 
uh, Simone could not use her Ritalin. And the particular event that she withdrew from is one that requires an awful lot of sustained focus while you're spinning through the air. And, and I'm again, I'm not a gymnast. You probably can tell looking at me, but uh, I can't imagine trying to keep control of spatial relationships and that kind of things under even highly trained, highly perfect. I'm well rested. I'm focused, et cetera. If you're also dealing with an attention system, which is, you know, grabbed by high stimulus environments and tends to dip when you aren't focusing, you know, the sort of dopamine stuff that comes along with a little bit of attention trouble. I mean, forget performing under high stress on the Olympics. Now you can try to do that without the support of your, you know, routine medication. It seems a little bit, you know, it was an additional challenge she had to, had to deal with. From my perspective, hearing that she was somewhat dependent on Ritalin to perform, my immediate thought was, oh, well, she just should take care of that brain difficulty. And, and I say that out loud sometimes on like a Facebook group or randomly, oh, you got some ADHD, let's take care of that. And people get really angry at me generally, often because they're like, what do you mean? You can't get rid of this stuff. And, and they're often, and when I point out that, oh, here's some you know, research showing the change and here's some you know, a thousand different brain maps I have or pre and post changes. And I talk about the kind of changes we get in attention. I mean, we tend to get on attention testing at least a standard deviation against the average population every 20 or 25 sessions of neurofeedback. So we do about 40 sessions minimum. I tell people 40 sessions is the minimum for permanence. And they may not get it, but they'll get some, some floor built up under them in that time frame. So about three times a week for three months is 40 sessions. And we tend to get a couple of standard deviations on executive function testing. And I'm sure all you guys do too. This is not you know magic for those of us in the field. We understand that it's a very large impact. But when you talk about the magnitude, you're taking people who are profoundly ADHD and impaired and getting stuff's in the way and moving them to above average typically in a semi-permanent way. And so when I just offhand mentioned that you should take care of your attention difficulty or your anxiety or your whatever, I, I, you know, I'm trying to be empowering. Sometimes I have to, I have to remember that people often have been suffering with this stuff for years and years and years. And the idea that they could have been doing something for it is very, very stressful. I mean, I had the same experience when I got control of my own ADHD um, I worked in an ADHD uh, and autism center doing neurofeedback. It's how I was trained up before grad school in a place in Providence uh, called the Neurodevelopment Center run by Dr. Larry Hirschberg, somebody else who's in the process of retiring now, another uh, F2, I guess, for Larry. Um, but in, in, in starting there, I was profoundly ADHD, like pick the most hyperactive, hard to control 10-year-old you've ever met in your life and multiply by a few. And that's me um, at age 28. You know, and I was thinking about grad school and trying to, you know, stress about the idea of studying and applying for, you know, different programs. And of course, when you're out of undergrad and into grad school, so much more of your work is uh, self-directed, delayed gratification stuff. So when you spend several years doing research and writing papers, it's not the most ADHD friendly environment because there's not much immediate you know, reward that comes in to keep you dragging through the slog. Um, and so I was, you know, working in the center and I started to see things like ADHD and autism seizures change. And I was shocked because I had been working in the field of, you know, mental health at that point for over a decade, mostly in really acute mental health, severely, uh, impaired adults in residential facilities with multiple disabilities, cognitive and physical. I was, you know, I learned uh, tactile signs so I could deal with people, you know, in, 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 uh, individual people. And I had to learn different sign for each person because they had very limited, you know, pidgin language themselves. And then I worked inpatient with uh, dual diagnosis with drug and alcohol. And I worked in gerontology units and psychiatric and just saw people at the absolute edge of 
human resources getting pinched and falling over. And then the developmental stuff at the end of life and early of life would both be an inflection there. And I started working in this place uh, in Providence and within a month was seeing ADHD symptoms change and autism start to shift. And was like, wait a minute, this isn't what I understood about the brain. How are we getting eye contact and sensory changes in autism? How are we getting executive function improvements in a month or two? This is bizarre. I was sort of uh, excited to understand that we could actually make change. And yet, um, this is a while ago, this is back in maybe 2001 or two, and the field hasn't advanced that much in the past 20 years, as I'm sure you you guys might agree. In terms of basic technique, it's kind of the same from my perspective. But at the time, there were maybe three or four different schools of thought. They had the truth. They had the idea about how this neurofeedback stuff worked. That was usually being driven by a particular vendor who had some ideas about how to implement stuff. But the field was full of people with fairly vitriolic arguments about this is the way to do it. No, it works this way. You have to use brain maps. No, you can't use brain maps. It was a growing you know, schism across different aspects of the field about what was happening, how it works, if it was voluntary, if it required you know, all kinds of different techniques. You know, It sort of struck me um, as a little bit silly because A, there were lots of egos involved, but B, all of those schools of thought were getting good results better results than is considered conventionally possible in psychiatry. Instead of, you know, any one of those schools of thought having the truth, it sort of struck me as what I call a blind men and elephant situation. You know, we all get a little piece of truth and we're describing it, but no one really has the overall perspective. So I hung out and did my own neurofeedback and did about 18 sessions and essentially eliminated, you know, what was fairly profound Uh, ADHD for myself. And that sort of gave me the freedom and the excitement and the encouragement and the resources to then go and get into grad school. And of course, I went to UCLA and did some uh, neurofeedback research there uh, and tried to push the field a little bit. But then on the far side of that, you know, this was in uh, the early 2000s when the grad school, the grad student landscape was shifting a little bit. You know, when I started grad school in 2005, all my peers were getting postdocs. And when I finished grad school in 2011, 2012, none of my peers were getting postdocs anymore. There's the competition was so high, the funding was so low. And so I decided to move into the uh, business world instead of the, you know, sort of academic postdoc world and having a, I have a cognitive neuroscience PhD. So I'm not a a psychologist, I'm not a clinical clinician. I'm a research scientist basically. And I wanted to find ways to take the cognitive stuff and bring it into the individual uh, agency you know, provide the person, the, the freedom, the power, the agency to take control of their brain. Mostly because I saw that neurofeedback was an agency building technique. It took whatever the diagnosis was, whatever the problem was. And even if we don't understand brains perfectly, looking at a brain map, looking at symptoms, looking at performance, you can demystify these things to some extent in a way that's often not true in other aspects of mental health. So showing someone their trauma, their posterior cingulate up or their anterior cingulate being obsessive or their temporal junction being hot, producing social and sensory issues was incredibly freeing for people to go, oh my gosh, my tinnitus you're seeing, oh, it's real. People haven't been believing me. Oh my gosh, it's real. Thank you. And I started having this experience where clients would lose the stigma, lose the frustration, lose the guilt because suddenly they could see, it's like, if I showed you your broken shoulder on an x-ray, you know, you understand it. You wouldn't normally be angry at your shoulder before that though, Right. You might be frustrated, but you wouldn't be like, oh, my shoulder, oh, I'm so weak. My shoulder's broken. But we do that with our brains. 
And so a lot of my, my mission here is to teach people about these modular uh, aspects of the brain that can support attention, stress, sleep, mood in a way that is then tractable, that you can then take control over. So that's where the mission statement, so to speak, of peak brain is this agency providing uh, thing. And we draw from the tools of psychology, medicine, and, and fitness, but we're kind of not really any of those things for people. So I'm on the business side of things. This is going to be my last question. It's a question from the parents out there. What do you tell the people who come into peak brain, the parents? Because, you know, the Olympics, uh, Naomi, uh, Simone, you know, they're like, what, what should I do for my kids? Do you suggest get it, you know, when they have to go in and get their physical, do you suggest getting a brain map uh, before the season every couple of years? Like, what do you tell the parents out there? Once they get a, you know, a knock to the noggin. Right. How do they know you don't have a baseline? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I tend to, to talk to parents when kids are either in crisis or when the parents are focused on the kid's performance, you know, so they're either a kid is a soccer player, they are an athlete, they are a gymnast or something, or they have some autism, they have a seizure, they have something else going on. So either they're walking in with identified complaint. Oh, my kid's having more seizures. Oh, my kid is getting in trouble in school. Or they're sort of like coming in from a, a broad perspective and the kid may have some history, may have some concussions, may be a soccer player, may have an eating disorder, whatever. Um, in the case of concussions, in the case of wear and tear, what I often tell people is you can't tell if there's a concussion in the brain using brain mapping. You can tell there's brain fog. You can look at course phenomena. You can say, oh, look, there's extra delta. Oh, your alpha waves are slow. But you won't know if someone's built that way if they acquired that through wear and tear, and you don't always know if it's a problem. When I tell people when looking at brain maps, you know, it's plausible. You don't know it's true. And then if it fits, okay, well now it's actionable, probably and you can test it. So I'm always about providing agency and ways to make intervention, less about understanding what has happened. I joke, if you want answers, go see a doctor. If you want questions, huh? come see a scientist. We have questions for you. But doctors' answers aren't always legit or aren't always satisfying, especially mental health. People get categorized, they get labeled, they have the agency taken away. And I often see people when they have these mysterious syndromes, no one else can figure out, and they've gotten lots of unsatisfying diagnoses, unsatisfying medications, unsatisfying interventions, and they're finally trying something that's a bit more, you know, them taking control of it. Um, so when it comes to concussion stuff, you know, if I have a, a kid client who's a soccer player or an athlete, what I'll say is we should map early and often. We should map now. And since I don't charge for repeat brain mapping, it's a very easy sell. I'll get one now and then they're free. Um, and we're also way underpriced for the field. We charge 500 bucks for a brain map, you know? So uh, it's, it's, this, it's this access uh, place we're providing. And then I also tell parents and, and adults that, you know, your concussions will bloom. They don't show up right away. If you get a concussion, car accident, an injury, come right in. Let's grab a snapshot. Probably won't show up. If it shows up, it's really bad. And you should go to the ER. Chances are concussion won't show up right away in, in EEG, but it'll bloom. It'll, it'll emerge over a few months. And that's what I want to watch for you, client. I want to watch your, your delta waves creep up at the point of impact, your alpha waves slow down as your sleep erodes. If, if it matters to you, let's watch it so you can keep an eye on it. And if it shows up a few months from now, let's say your speed of processing drops, a little focal area shows up that you bruised. And we see it. Well, you can just go after it now directly with some good sense of where you can apply pressure without it having to develop these broad inflammatory states. I mean, post-concussion stuff is nonspecific and tends to produce, as I'm sure you guys know, lack of sleep 
anxiety, lack of stamina, slow processing, but it doesn't show up right away. And half of all brain injuries are silent. There's no symptoms initially, but you get this five, six year process of everything eroding. And so the, you know, the old football player was fine finishing their college football career, but 10 years later, they can't sleep. They're burnt out in the afternoon, can't find words. They're irritable. They're short. They're, they're frustrated. And they're just, you know, full catastrophe, stress and attention living here. You show them their brain and suddenly it makes sense. So I've had more than a handful of people who the benefit I give them is simply showing them their brain. I had a dad call me couple days ago. And I said, Oh, I haven't, haven't talked to you in a few years. I, I, you know, I talked to you a couple of years ago and I've done a brain map on their son and the son didn't actually start training, which is a little unusual. Usually people see their brain. They're like, Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's work on that. But this kid looked at his brain and I sort of said, well, look, there's some attention difficulty, but look at how powerful you are. Look at all this amazing ability to see patterns and look how fast your processing speed is. And I gave, I always give this like resource description, not a diagnostic. So I kind of broke apart the positives and the negatives in this kid's attention performance as he headed into uh, college. And it was enough of a validation that he decided it was time to organize his time and structure his life and everything else and soared successfully in undergrad simply by seeing that he had some resources on the ball that, were, that changed his perspective on ADHD for him away from the diagnostic, you know, uh, category into the more nuanced resources he was actually dealing with. And I gave him some coaching around, oh, look, your auditory system doesn't alert very well, but your visual system does sit in the front of the class. When you're studying, play loud music with no lyrics. And those two things will hack around the, the weakness and help you activate your brain. And he used these things to successfully then move through, you know, understanding himself. And we never did neurofeedback. And it was enough to to, to point at the brain and, and, and educate people. So I like doing that. And in some ways my job is done once I teach you a little bit about yourself and then you can decide, you know, if there's interventions you want to pursue. I was um, caught by one of the first things you said about that seems like the field is, is shrinking or maybe not growing. Just curious about your understanding of why that could be. And then uh, another kind of same question that if you were to start a neurofeedback practice now, 2021, we're post-COVID, what would the approach be? Is there anything different you would do? And I guess just kind of curious if you would speak to kind of the future of neurofeedback. I would say, um, to answer the first question, I think the field is shrinking because the skill sets required to do neurofeedback are not trivial. Um, I mean, my mentor in the field, my first boss, Larry Hirschberg, He's just a clinical psychologist, you know, a psychodynamic Freudian type psychologist, but he was also had to be a windows expert and an EEG expert and a brain mapping expert and taught some physiology at Brown. Like by the time he was done his career, and Larry's retiring right now, he had developed skill sets, broad skill sets in a lot of different domains, powerfully, you know, really deep knowledge. And that's a little unusual for the clinical professional who wants to niche down and specialize in the population they care about with the tools that work for that population and then provide a lot of change. And most people in the field of neurofeedback started off doing something different started off as a, as an, as a trauma therapist or an addiction therapist or a autism person or an ADHD coach or something. And then they discover, Hey, wait a minute, this neurofeedback stuff seems to impact this population. I care about, Ooh, I'm going to learn some. And the way they learn it is in a four day workshop or a conference somewhere. And they learn some basics and unfortunately, the field is full of a lot of marketing information that obscures the science. So there's platforms out there that use 
invalid language around what they are and, and marking language that obscures what's happening. And they say things that aren't true. So people don't understand who use the tools, what they do. And so you have people who are sort of like punching buttons on black boxes and using recipe books and clinical lore and can navigate their way through one type of brain challenge successfully and effectively with one set of tools. That's most of the field, I would argue. You know, you get an autism therapist who's really good at working with HEG and specific right hemisphere stuff with, you know, Dr. Coben's maybe uh, 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 multivariate coherence, let's say. But you can't then work with trauma necessarily, you know, psych psychiatric trauma necessarily. It's a different skill set. So that's been a difficult uh, adjustment for individuals in the field to develop enough skills. And what tends to happen is people will niche down into the skill sets they enjoy and work with clients they can make success with, and that's it. And then those people will scale up their personal bandwidth the way a, a therapist will, which is like 20 people, 30 people, right? That's, that's, that's the roster. That's the, that's the census of a therapist is 20, 30 people. When I was working for Dr. Hirschberg, when we had, when we had a busy weeks, it was, you know, 50 to hundred sessions in the office. That was a busy week, a very busy week. It was great. But Dr. Hirschberg Center is one of the, one of the larger ones in the country with multiple stations running. When I was working there, we had eight stations running continuously. It was amazing. And my centers, my, my larger centers have six stations running, which is great. But most people are running one station, maybe two. It's on one-on-one. -on -one with their clinical population that they're seeing themselves once, twice a week, maybe three times a week. And so those people get busy. They have a mentee or two, but they hit 60 years old, 65 years old. They're like, oh, I'm going to retire now. And I guys, I can't tell you how many times a month, I would say it's at least once a week, I get a call from a practitioner or an email or sort of, you know, curious request from somebody saying, you know, well, I'm going to close my center. Would you like to buy it? Would you like to take it over? Every single week, somebody reaches out and says, oh, I'm trying to figure out how to hand off my center to somebody. I can't find someone who can do this. I can't find a postdoc to train up. I can't find a good psychologist who's interested. And I think the other piece of that is when I train my staff or I train clinicians to do this, it doesn't happen instantly. I mean, the skill set, the hands-on piece of it can happen in a few days, but I find it takes about a year of looking at brain maps before they start to make sense. And about two years of making decisions about neurofeedback protocols from brain maps before you start to systematize it with the people you work with. But so I think that's a big ask for the, the transfer of information. And I think what ends up happening is you have the skilled neurofeedbackers dwindling, and you also have a burgeoning of the one size fits all systems, the non-tailored systems that I do not like, and I think cause problems. And then also the sort of weak T versions of traditional neurofeedback, the like, so the lightweight caps that have dry electrodes that have, you know, turnkey systems with fewer, you know, I don't want to name any brand names to avoid annoying people, but I do, I, I think the process of neurofeedback is best done when it's heavily individualized, when every person's brain is assessed and when the, when the process that's done to the person is then tailored and iterative the way fitness is. And I think that there are some one size fits all, some things you don't have to learn anything that work okay if you're average. And that's, diluting the quality of the field. And the other half of it is the skilled people are aging out, dying, can't find people to, men to mentor, et cetera. So, I mean, I joke, there's probably between five and 10,000 people in the US that do this work at a clinical level pretty well. There's probably more than 10,000 chiropractors in Los Angeles, if I had to guess, you know, so it's not a very large field. 
And I have a lot of European clients. There are way more neurofeedback people in the US than there are in Europe, way more. Um, it's just a wide west of people trying things and you know, trying to build businesses and no one's having any support. So I have, I have as many clients in Australia and you know, Copenhagen and, and, and Denmark as I do in like Canada, for instance, because there's so little neurofeedback happening in Australia, happening in Denmark, that I've got tons of clients in those countries, send them gear. Um, it's just as hard, by the way, to send gear to Canada as it is to Australia. I don't know why that is, but it is. It's annoying. Um, but, you know, the, the short answer, Dr. Laura, is that I think the skill sets required are not being well transferred to the individuals who might want to do this work. Tons of people want to do it. I get calls from clinicians every single week. Ooh, would you teach me? Would you supervise me? Would you become my mentor? And I usually say no, because it's not a very scalable thing. And I'm trying to open up peak brains, not just, you know, create right. more people, but um, it's so, a need. Yeah. Yeah. So how would we fix it? And I know it's kind of a grandiose question, but any, any uh, suggestions, any thoughts? I'm in the process of fixing it. Okay. Um, your secret safe here. Go ahead. Uh, right. This is just a podcast with tens of thousands of people listening. Um, one thing you guys, I'm sure all know deeply, especially Dr. Gunkelman, but um, brain mapping is a bit of a rigid and slightly awkward thing to use because brain mapping or QEEG is driven by comparisons to normative, i.e. heavily cleaned, arbitrarily average, and not really typical databases. The reason we do that compare you to average is because we got to compare you to something to get a sense of the bell curve and how weird things are. But people are a little bit variable day to day. Brain mapping itself, QEEG is stable month after month, year after year, if it's clean data, it's according to the literature. However, that's because we heavily control it. You can't be tired, no caffeine, first half of the day, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm doing, um, I'm doing something I'll explain in a minute to help that piece of it. But also, um, as I'm sure you guys know, who've all done neurofeedback, a lot of the, the, the critical skill or a lot of the critical thing that is required to do neurofeedback well is the steering process. Well, what, did ha what happened after that session? How did you feel? How was your sleep? How was your stress? How was your trauma? How was your drinking? You know, what happened? Because the impact of a single session tends to be about 24 to 36 hours, then it wears off. And so you have an opportunity to sort of burgeon that effect and build it or steer it or tweak it. But that's predicated on the client being a good observer and a good reporter. And in a traditional psychology environment, reporting and, and observing is really poor. And um, we were lucky if we got a third of clients to report back what was happening with their sleep or something in the addiction space. I've built a system to ping people periodically about their sleep, their stress, their day, their mood, and aggregate that survey data back into their training logs. So I have um, I've cobbled together software to collect all the neurofeedback sessions, all the brain mapping data, all the attention test data, all the things we're trying for neurofeedback and all the survey results so that people like me who have the domain expertise, if you will, of brain training can look at the brain map, can look at the result, can look at the history, just like all the clinicians do. But I've compressed it down to a very tight little bit of information. And right now we're moving that to a mobile app. So soon we'll have this round trip information where the clinician can communicate with their client on the same software they're using to track the training sessions and track their sleep. You know, I'm wearing an aura ring, for instance, that'll get sucked into the, to the system. But what this will do is it'll provide me longitudinal, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, sense of people's changing states. QEG is traits, not states. It's trait stability. But against the states, caffeine, fatigue, trauma, medications, whatever, 
if I'm tracking that across a month, the variability day to day, month to month, a month to month, week to week across people's different major subjective resources, and then occasionally brain mapping, what we're going to be able to do is essentially create a wild type database for QEGs instead of a normative database. So the normative databases are several thousand people. You have to hit about 3000 people roughly to approach the shape of a normal population of an average population when it's heavily cleaned. But if we had normal data, so wild type data, sleepy data, caffeinated data, data when I'm stoned, data when I'm tired, whatever, and just track that for thousands of people, we should be able to generate essentially a sense of a dirty brain map, no matter what's going on for you against all of the variables we're tracking. And so the power of the variability, the, the variance of the standard deviation becomes multidimensional against lifestyle factors, which means suddenly we can start doing things like predicting how to change brains based on what we're seeing change. So this becomes a round trip where the QEG becomes not just a tool to help you come up with ideas and apply pressure, but then we round trip that back into how one individual, you know, one psychiatric complaint or one medication status is impacted. Like I know if someone's on a certain med, what it looks like in their brain sometimes, or I know if a certain med is on board, how to work through it or around it. Like for instance, um, one of the meds I hate to work through is Buspar. Buspirone. It's the only med I hate to work through, actually, because Buspirone is a non-typical, a non-standard anti-anxiety med in that it brings up, it suppresses slow brain waves. Most anti-anxiety meds make you more relaxed. They bring up slow brain waves in some ways. But Buspar shuts down theta. It suppresses right frontal theta. And if someone's on Buspar and they have a lot of anxiety, Buspar hides the right frontal theta. I can't see it on the brain map and I can't touch it with neurofeedback until the Buspar is out of the way. And almost no other drug is like that. You can see the patterns through the drug if you're, you know, maybe not fully, but you can see them and you can train them. But there's a few drugs that get in the way. Now, if somebody had a history of Buspar and anxiety, the variable dosing, the variable strategies, the wild type variability of that right front theta I would have been able to figure that out ahead of time, not just by not supporting one or two clients who were on Buspar and then retrospectively realizing what happened later, you know, 10 years later. Um, I'd be able to do that in real time going, oh, this client responded to right front training, not sure why, and be able to get a sense of the, oh, that's a medication status thing. And essentially doing machine learning out of the brain mapping. And the, I mean, all you guys are still clinicians. You look at brain maps, you look at reports, you look at goals, you make a call. Oh, let's do this. Let's try this version. Let's do this protocol. But I want to take that out of the, the skilled heads of us because that is a dwindling resource. I want to first persist people like us, several of us side by side, making good decisions. And then my data system is capturing a few hundred data points per day per person, basically. And then over a few years of that, we can start doing predictive neurofeedback. Oh, this complaint, this brain, let's try this. And we can start taking the the gifted people like us out of the equation to some extent. It's wonderful we've been in you know, building the field, but I'm concerned that it's relying on us and it should not rely on us. This is getting rigorous enough that we should be doing predictive analytics and machine learning to do neurofeedback protocols. We should not be just having, oh, I have access to this gifted person who knows how to work with trauma or seizures. I'll talk to them. That's a bit of a concern for the growth of the field. So I'm trying to democratize it all from the point of view of fitness, but then take the science out of the, the mystery place and bring it to the more rigorous place. Andrew, so you mentioned 
not being a clinician and, and kind of steering away from maybe the more therapeutic aspects of it. And this is a little tongue in cheek, but your description of that conversation you have with folks, when you show them how their brain works, my experience is that's, that's incredibly impactful and profound for people to see that almost a paradigm shift. Right. And that's therapy, right? So, so you're doing it. Uh, at least in those moments, but but more to my point is that that is such a, a powerful experience for people to conceptualize this unseeable and and because of the way our brains work unconsciously, you don't have to think about it for it to work. You got to kind of concentrate on moving your leg a little bit, you know, to walk up steps, et cetera. It, it, it can really be a changer. And I guess the, the therapeutic end on my end, not to, you know, rope you into this therapeutic world, but it it uh, instills agency and folks have a buy-in and, yeah. and that changes things, whether you're doing neurofeedback or not, my experience, right? Once you get folks, you know, invested in doing this, whatever this is, that's, that's an agency for change too, right? It just affects people's involvement in things. But so just a comment, but the question I had a couple, and if you can get both, that's fine. But man, I was intrigued by this idea of concussions blooming and, and what you might be able to tell us from your experience and, and even, you know, literature that you guys are collecting on your end. And then if you have time, what the hell are you seeing with post COVID brains? I know it's probably not one thing, but if there's any, any Oh, it is. Oh, it is. is it? Oh, yeah. shoot. Yeah. Please, please share. Um, and it's the same question. It's, it's the same answer actually about concussions. It's the same conversation. The short answer is all we're dealing with is neuroinflammation as far as I can tell. And there's lots of reasons to have, neuroinflammation, subacute or acute, you know, a lot of us, it's shocking to what extent we see indications of brain fog or injury in everyone or in many people. I joke that there's, you know, no safe level of impact. Half of injuries all have, uh, you know, have no symptoms, but do produce uh, difficulty later. And so I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the blooming is that 50% of injuries do not show any symptoms right away. And yet there's a structural change. In the cases of injury types, uh, crush injuries, impact injuries tend to produce a bit of the brain that's pushed on, that's bruised. That changes the regulatory uh, environment within the tissue, and it will often drop back into delta waves, the slowest brain wave. And I, I kind of think of delta as the heartbeat of the brain. It's, uh, we, we, we live in delta. We don't think in it. And it runs your autonomic stuff, your cell metabolism. It's running big surges of CSF, of cerebral of, of fluid through your brain, like a washing machine agitation cycle when you're asleep to pull out toxins and help a metabolic reset. But if you end up not sleeping, your brain makes delta to try to compensate for that lack of sleep. If you end up concussed, a bit of tissue, if it's specific, will be like, oh, I'm not sure what to do anymore. And it drops back into a delta pulse, basically, the heartbeat of the brain. And what I will see when working with concussions is often, uh, crush injuries is often delta blobs. If somebody has a, a, a ballistic or a shear injury, if they in a bicycle or a motorcycle accident, or they're in a car that's been spun or something, the injury is often different. Um, if you pull tissue away from tissue, you break the neurons that, that connect regions called inhibitory interneurons. And those are mostly shutting down activity, the breaks for different modular bits of tissue. So if you break the if you remove the breaks between bits of tissue, you have little spots where the, the tissue is running really fast. So you see little blobs of beta waves uh, when there's shear damage. And again, I don't know if these are from damage when I see them, but if I see, oh, look at all that 
blob of delta you have on the back left. And you also tend to see the coup contra coup patterns. You see the stripe, the diagonal stripe through the head. So if someone's got a blob of delta in the right front corner and back left corner, I wouldn't know it's from an injury, but I might say, oh, hey, this tissue in the back right is social and sensory. You doing sensory irritability? Oh, you are. Okay, that's probably valid. No, and for some people, this kind of pattern might represent a line of force to the head. Oh, that sounds plausible. It might be. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The fog is what matters. And we can work on it whether or not it's an injury. So I'm not trying to get to the diagnostic label. I'm, I'm always, in fact, I'm always trying to shy away from it. I joke to clients that it's their job to make the meaning and to have the experience. And I will help them understand some ideas and they'll tell, help me understand what is actually true. Sorry to interrupt, therapist. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I have to be ethically and therapeutically appropriate, <laughs> even if I'm not doing therapy. Right. I, I, I know. I have, an ethical, I have an ethical line to walk. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I worked in so many crisis environments and inpatient environments that I have, I have a therapeutic and a therapy skill set that is actually more practiced and more experienced than most therapists I know who are actually psychologists, just to be frank. But I don't want to be a therapist for you. I'm not in the process of developing transference, safe containers, and, 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 and becoming part of the, you know, done with you agency thing. I'm in the process of like the coach saying, all right, here's how you ski. I'll meet you at the bottom of the mountain, see how bruised up you are and help you affect your technique. You know, that's the kind of coach I am. Go try that. Oh, that hurt? Huh. Try that. Oh, you like that? Okay, great. And I joke to clients, yeah, you know, it's kind of like I send you to the gym and you work out and later on you're like, oh, my, my shoulders are sore. I'm like, oh, they must be taller than I thought. I'll move the seat height on the machine. Try it again. Oh, you like that? Okay. And yet I don't know what height is here. We're often kind of trying to guess about what's going to work well for somebody. Back to the concussion question, you know, you'll see little kernels of Delta, little, little signatures of a stripe of beta or something. If it's plausibly an injury, great, you know, it's worth working on. But if it's recent, it doesn't show up that often. Maybe you'll see something, but not dramatically. And since I work with people for years and years and years, and they often get free brain maps, I have this luxury. There's no cost involved beyond goopy hair for getting a brain map. So my clients map with wild abandon and frequently and often, and it's, it's great. And so I've got like maps and maps and maps and maps and maps for thousands of people. And, you know, someone called me um, at Christmas time. He's oh, Andrew, I just got a concussion. I'm like, why are you skiing? Why are you skiing? You had a concussion last month. Yeah, I know. But I decided I, I could probably take it easy. And then I, my son got me out in the slopes and yeah, I got injured again. Oh, well, come on back. Let's see what you look like. And he had a concussion. It had been doing really well. And it was reactivated. So you'll see that. And people that have concussions who are athletes, it's not their first one. You know, kid or adult athletes, um, you tend to see the repetitive wear and tear stuff, especially because it's often sports driven. You know, a single, a single soccer heading drill done one time by one person, one teenager, will produce GABA signatures in the brain like a brain injury for 48 hours after the heading drill. So you see lots of stuff in people, but what tends to happen is over two to four months, the injury will show up. The person's brain fog will also get worse in that first month usually. So they feel horrible, but as they recover from the, the hit, the days, the fatigue, the anxiety, the sleep erodes, anxiety goes, uh, goes up, stamina goes down. We see the alpha speed go down. We see the amount of delta go up or down depending and the regulation of delta go fast or slow depending. And the person reports being half awake when they're asleep, being half asleep when they're awake, having no mental stamina, having no word finding, being, being kind of anxious all the time. 
And you can track those things as little blobs showing up in the brain, the, the, the delta waves usually getting worse. Sometimes it's the beta waves, but it's usually delta, um, you know, slow, not fast. I have clients who have worked through major brain injuries, who've worked through major developmental changes and, and, and are amazing, you know, highly performant individuals after some neurofeedback. And I haven't seen them for a few years and they're all coming back now. And I'm seeing them and I look at their brain. I'm like, oh, wait, did you have another concussion? Because these little blobs that were tiny of the Delta, mostly dealt with, have blown up. So what I'm seeing is the existing old stuff, mostly, is what will swell up. And so usually on the sides of the head, uh, temporal lobes typically are where you see there's a lot of blood flow. So the top of the head for Delta and the edges are where the Delta's kernels are showing up. And Delta's uh, also tends not to track the brain tissue, but the vascular or the blood flow. So when this blood flow changes, you see big delta changes as well. So we tend to see those things on the sides of the head and any place else where there's been a delta blob historically, it blooms again. And I'm pretty sure the sides of the head are just like the temporal metabolism dropping because of some broad inflammation. It's not probably from the temporal lobes, but people are reporting all the same post-concussive symptoms. They report, you know, from concussions after COVID now. So, and even, and even after vaccines and even at, and sometimes people are having second and, and tertiary infections and having the same kind of brain fog afterwards. So it's a very strange phenomenon. I have seen a couple of folks have gotten vaccinated and have their post COVID fog go away with a vaccine too, which is interesting. The vaccine causes a, uh, the brain to deal with the, the inflammatory milieu and it addresses it sometimes. So, but it just gives people some perspective on this stuff. Again, I'm never telling them here's what's true. I'm saying, here's what's plausible. What do you think? And they tend to make the meaning. Oh yeah, that's my COVID. Okay. Oh yeah. That's my old football injury. Okay. Let's see. Let's see what happens. If we lean on it. And so they end up having the second, third, fourth brain map. That's the place where they make the, the meaning and that's what they, they get excited and they've made some change and et cetera. So uh, we've got an agreement that the old people in the field are getting old and retiring or passing. Uh, that that's obvious. I have a little bit of a different perspective and uh, that I do think that the field is expanding. Uh, back when I referred you to UCLA as a location to go to do a PhD that wouldn't kill your career um, uh, by asking to do a PhD dissertation in neurofeedback, now I could point to a dozen here in the United right. States. I can point to them all over the world. Yep. There, there, there are major universities uh, doing neurofeedback studies. Uh, now, uh, Salzburg, Austria, the Consciousness and Sleep Lab, Graz, Austria, Gert Furcheller's lab on event related synchronization, desynchronization. Uh, Griselier is retired, but uh, uh, you, you can get a, a PhD in the area of neurofeedback in London, um, uh, Open University, and uh, Royal College of, Med of Medicine. The opportunity to actually enter the field is uh, burgeoning. Uh, the, the number agree, but it's also not, I mean, the number of people who can actually, you know, execute and do it well, isn't, is it increasing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would say I agree though. I was in grad school, UCLA, arguably the best psychology school in the world, arguably, um, tends to rate <laughs> that way. Uh, and my first year there, as I was applying to grad school, I think you had the conversation. I had to be careful mentioning the words biofeedback and neurofeedback, or I got eye yeah. rolls in interviews. Yep. Um, and the same thing happened at UCLA, but I got in and my third year there, something weird happened. All these really famous scientists doing cognitive neuroscience in learning and language and autism, 
start saying, hey, you're that neurofeedback guy. Hey, can we do some studies together? And I want to do some neurofeedback with my population or my test. Can you add your test to your grads, to your dissertation work now? And suddenly all these serious scientists who are not that interested in this woo stuff were very interested. And there seems to have been a sea change since. So not to say the field is not elaborating and getting better. And there are people who are pushing the technology better, but I would say the field itself is not changing and proving technology much at all. Individuals are the people taking stuff, ERP training, MRI training, SCP, and for slow and for low, all the different techniques. I'm, I'm very excited about them all, but I couldn't train somebody up effectively in half those things and have them know how to do them. Yeah. And so I tend to focus on, it's what I call the peak brain way, a replicable way of going after basic brain resources of sleep, stress, and attention. And you guys will understand uh, this language. What I'm mostly doing is regulatory arousal model, neurofeedback, what we might consider the old school Othmer model, not the new school one, mixed with alpha theta, mixed with HEG, and then I'm a laterality scientist, of course, working with Dr. Zidel. So I have a laterality left-right hemisphere and a developmental psychologist perspective on autism and ADHD. So I took this arousal model that the Othmers helped promulgate, and I reframed it into a laterality model while working at UCLA, essentially. And then I tested, you guys can read my dissertation if you're curious. I tested how to measure attention each hemisphere of the brain separately and validated some of this ideas. I mean, you've all trained SMR, beta, and you know that there's some hemispheric differences. Well, I built a whole system of neurofeedback around those differences, yeah. both assessing them at the actual hemispheric level, as well as, you know, balancing the things we do the way you do in personal training. You know, you do some alpha and some beta to get you relaxed and focused kind of thing, you know, but I'm not trying to be the absolute hundred percent cutting edge, most impactful bit of neurofeedback for one person, I'm trying to be the most accessible, most impactful neurofeedback for as many people as possible. And to some extent, I'm, I'm regularizing SMR, alpha, theta, and HEG into a set of 30 or 40 different protocols to address 30 or 40 different classic brain pattern goals. And then people end up becoming more nuanced within that relationship themselves. And it, you know, they often have a therapist. They're often dealing with their anxiety, their trauma with their therapist while working on their brain but it gives them a tool set they can bring to bear. And I can do that for, I mean, we, we, I think right now we have 175 clients or something active uh, who are actively training. Um, I, can, I could not do 175 people as a therapist in an office. Couldn't come close to that, 10% of that. But you know, I, I'm gonna spend a half an hour after this podcast doing all the case management for the day for my Los Angeles office. And my remote coaches will be touching base with me each for half an hour today with their own individual rosters of 20 clients. And they'll then go forth and say, oh, hey, Joe, Dr. Dr. Hill today. And we thought you might want to do this protocol set this week. We adjusted these protocols and let's schedule some time later on to find new site in your head. So they can do that. And the client's experience of it is very different than having it done to them if they've actually been sticking wires to their head. And to your point, you know, if you take someone as trauma or anxiety or tinnitus or something that's really overwhelming and really disempowering, and you give them a little bit of change that they've accomplished, 10% of their goals, let's say, that 10% of movement that they have worked on in a domain that they've normally, typically, historically been out of control in is sometimes, like you've done most of the work, a little bit of change in trauma, a little bit of change in OCD or PTSD, and it's like, oh my God, I'm I feel so good now. Yeah, but you've only done a month and a half of training. 
like I, I give free service to veterans, you know, as part of the homecoming for veterans program. And these guys come in severely traumatized sometimes and 20 sessions in, they're like, Hey doc, I'm feeling great. Am I done? I'm like, well, I'm glad you're feeling great, but I'm still seeing trauma stuff in their brain and their sleep isn't great, but it's, it's come so far in a couple of months from where it used to be. that They think they're, you know, all better, so to speak. And that happens when you start to take control of your own brain. I'm not sure what the metaphor is, but you know, those, those gym bros who get so swole, they can't drop their arms. Once they realize how easy it is to get big pecs and arms, they just do it. And that happens with neurofeedback sometimes when it's not a therapy modality, when it's more under your control. And so I I joke, if you walk into Equinox or Gold's gym, you know, everyone's got their abs hanging out. All the staff is, you know, flexing and pumping. But if you walk into a peak brain office, they all have their good listening skills and kindness hanging out. It's really weird. Um, All my 20 something and 30 something staff have this vibe, like they're 95 year old meditators. They're super well-adjusted and calm and low key because they sit around and train their brains for fitness and performance, not because there's anything wrong with them per se. And I think that we're, you know, doing a disservice to the most of people who don't do neurofeedback. You know, I I point out sometimes people that 50 years ago when our parents were, you know, younger, there were no gyms. There were no gyms in the country. You couldn't go to the gym in the forties. Couldn't do it. There was, what do you mean? A gym, a gymnasium? What do you mean? Place to work out? Huh? Go for a walk, go for a run, lift some heavy things, lift some hay. Well, nowadays we have gyms in every single corner. Well, I think the brain gym, taking control of cognitive and physiological mental health, so to speak, is the next iteration of that. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is give people the same degree of control that they might have over their abs or their back pain, uh, over their trauma response or their speed of processing or their impulsivity. Because as you guys know, those things are completely tractable for change. Amen, Dr. Hill. What's the best way for uh, people to get a hold of you? Is uh, peakbraininstitute.com? Is that the best URL? Peakbraininstitute.com is the website. Um, all of our socials are at peakbrainla. Um, LA, got yeah, it. Peak Brain LA is all the social media. And if folks want to watch my baking adventures, that's just Andrew Hill PhD. It's mostly just food. I just bake Baking adventures, got it. Well, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, folks. Nice to see you all today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Laura, you got a... Yes. What's that little bottle you got there? Yes. Speaking of neurohacking, neurotropic things, uh, Ars Coso sent us out a bottle of pre-postbiotic. And my job a couple of weeks ago was to try it out. And so what did I do? I did not try it out. And I'm here to try it out right now. I'm going to pour... It's 15 milliliters, which apparently is a half an ounce. And so pour that in there with some sparkling water. It's pretty viscous. It is the color of whiskey, but smells like vegetables, fruits. smells like raisins, I guess. So I'm going to take a sip. And I'm waiting for the uh, to the end of the show to try this. um, It's it's designed to be cleansed. So okay. Yeah. So if we see running away from the screen, no, no EMTs standing by or anything. <laughs> uh, it actually tastes really I, good. So viscous. It's, yeah, it's viscous. It's kind of the um, what it tastes like raisins. So it, it's actually a very good uh, drink. So highly okay. recommend the taste of it. And I'll um, try to give not, t- not too much TMI next time. But um, all right, all right. I'll let you know. Well, you know, let us know how it all uh, comes out. 
<laughs> All right, that's our uh, Ars Coso report. <laughs> I think Dr. Laura had to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> it'll unfreeze your insides. Okay, thanks. <laughs> we, 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 <laughs> we thank you. Highbrow to lowbrow. Highbrow to lowbrow in three seconds. Where that's right. That's what we're all about. We, we thank she you didn't, all for Did she spill it on her computer? I mean, <laughs> your system froze up there for a moment. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. The contact info for everyone is located in the podcast notes below. If you have an idea for a topic, reach out to me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com, or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our YouTubers get to see all this fun stuff, because I don't edit any of the YouTube stuff. little secret between us girls smash that like button on facebook instagram and follow us on twitter and hey if you really really like us you can always buy us a coffee on patreon slash neuro noodle cue the band <laughs> <laughs>